I want to thank our sponsor, Planet Ford. Planet Ford has always been a proud supporter of law enforcement in the community, providing customer service and fleet management, sales and service. If you're looking for that personal quality service, contact Planet Ford in spring or online at planetford.com. You're listening to Crime Scene Today, where we discuss current and future issues facing law enforcement, forensics, and crime scene investigation. I'm your host, Dan Zintek. Today's broadcast, will be discussing details of violent acts. Listener discretion is advised. So joining me today, we have our regular co-host, Les Tally Fire. The fire marshal works it, and uh, if we find out that it's related to a homicide, then the homicide division gets involved. And... This is a case that definitely is, as we start going through, you realize both definitely need to be involved in doing this because there are so many different expertise uh, in the forensic field of fire investigation versus normal uh, crime scene investigation that uh, really are unique to one another. So, uh, so Kevin, thank you for coming in. And, and uh, I also want to recognize that uh, you know, there's three of us sitting here that were involved in this case. Absolutely. There, there were a lot of people involved in this case, and I had, I had done a quick run through just, uh, just to acknowledge them and, and show that you know our patrol division had, had two people that responded in reference to this. Uh, there were seven people from the detective division. There were seven people from the crime lab, and there were uh, six people from the fire marshal. So there was a, a large team that was involved in this case. We're just representatives um, from. Uh, uh, much larger group that were involved in this. Uh, so uh, to sort of start us off, uh, we're talking about the murder of, of Michael Glody, but it did not start a, as a murder, uh, that at least as far as we knew. Uh, so the date is February 2nd. Uh, it's after midnight. And uh, Kevin, you sort of walk us through. Uh, it just comes in as a, an arson call or, or a fire, I guess. Uh, so how'd that come about? Yeah, so typically... With Montgomery County Fire Marshal's Office, we investigate any structure fire within Montgomery County. And so it's not uncommon for us to get notified after hours of a fire. Uh, very early on uh, during the fire department's suppression of the fire, we learned that they found a victim uh, inside the structure where the fire had occurred. <clears throat> when that happens, we send an investigator mainly out to the scene. Uh, Darren Hess with our office uh, responded to the scene and started the investigation. Uh, he worked cooperatively with the fire department to make sure that we preserved as much evidence as possible and started processing that scene. And uh, now, you remember how y'all got the call on it? Like, was a witness had seen it. I want to. I want to say it was like a truck driver or something. I think it was a neighbor. I think it was a neighbor. I'm kind of. I, th I think it was. He was. I think midnight was his normal shift. Like he was getting right. up to go somewhere, and he saw like. I mean, it wasn't fully involved. I mean, it was just a flicker. So they thought something was, was odd. There was a fire over there initially. It called it in. Right. So that was, I guess that's how this first came in. Now, when the fire department goes, they always call y'all first, or it's like because they found the body, they call y'all? So once they discovered the body in the fire is when they called us. Usually when they get on scene, they have a lot of stuff going on. Um, they have to get the fire under control, kind of try to figure out what they have. They do what they call a primary search when they're initially starting to fight the fire. They're looking to see if there's any victims inside the residence that can be rescued. Uh, during the fire suppression in their primary search, they, they discovered uh, uh, Michael Glody uh, within the 
within the structure. We didn't, we weren't able to confirm that at the time, but we did find the body. Right. And I mean, that brings up another point. I mean, most, I say most, but certainly the, the victims of these fires, uh, they're not recognizable. They're, you know, there's, there's other right. things we have to do uh, to confirm. I mean, we believe, I mean, it, it's most likely that when we go to one of these, that the person who lived there is a person that we believe is probably the person that died, but we can't say that. I mean, with without a doubt, right? So you know, we have to do the DNA, dental records, those type of things, and, and other things to do that. So now, I know something unique to y'all's office uh, that we don't really get involved in is is collecting stuff for accelerants and things like so how how do you determine whether an accelerant's used not used what's what sort of the process that normal or, or otherwise so normally when an investigator first starts looking at a fire scene the they will go in and start looking at fire patterns that are present uh, on the outside of the structure the inside of the structure we work in a systematic manner going from the least amount of damage to the most significant and then once we kind of get there we um, look at the patterns and see if they're abnormal or if there's something that would indicate that there might be the presence of an accelerant our our best tool that we utilize is an accelerant detection canine uh, we've had through the uh, bureau of alcohol tobacco and firearms uh, we've had an accelerant canine within our office for over 20 years now um, we've had during my time there, we've had a span of four or five dogs. Uh, they've been a great asset because they are specifically trained on common accelerants that would be used in a fire, and they can pinpoint where uh, our best sample would be taken. So now y'all also collect, uh, I guess, material and stuff. Is, is it, I guess, where the dog hits, then you collect from that area? or So typically when the dog, uh, we call an alert, when the dog alerts, um, the, uh, either the canine handler will collect the evidence in a, in a metal can or uh, he'll dictate that to someone else to go collect that evidence. They'll go in, collect it in a metal can so that it's sealed because um, they're called what we call a volatile, volatile chemical. So if we just let it sit in a normal bag or something like that, those chemicals are going to off-gas like gasoline or uh, other types of fuels that we would commonly find in a fire. Uh, so they're sealed in that, and they're sent off to um, the state lab for processing. So what's the what's the procedure? I mean, obviously it's in the can. What do they do at the the lab with it? Is it like other chemical processing? So or? the the process they use is is a uh, it goes through a gas chromatograph mass spectrometer, uh, GCMS, more commonly known as um, <clears throat> the technique that they utilize is called heated headspace. So they'll heat up the can, and they'll collect the the vapor level at the top of the can, and that with that heated headspace, and then that will go run through the GCMS. All chemicals have a specific signature when they go through a GCMS, and then the scientist who's working on that at the lab will be able to say whether they have gasoline or kerosene or some other type of ignitable liquid. So now, does this just say what it is, or can it say like the the concentration of it? Is it is so that it's, part of it, or no? No, it's specifically just identifying whether you have like a gasoline or uh, other families of of Okay. Accelerants. So your part in this case, did you go to the, you didn't go that night to the scene? I did not. So you headed the next day to the autopsy. Right. So first thing the next, that morning, uh, I went to the forensic center and met with uh, Dr. VC. Uh, Joe Mance from our office was also there. And uh, we started, Dr. VC started the process uh, by taking x-rays of, right. uh, of the body. 
So what, I guess, what came out of that that switched it from y'all working it to notifying sheriff's department that, that we had a homicide? Right, so as you mentioned earlier, we generally work uh, most fire fatalities uh, and unless something suspicious comes up. Uh, during the process of x-raying the, the body, when we took x-rays of the head, Dr. VC discovered that there was uh, what appeared to be two bullets uh, within the head. And so he processed that a little bit further. Once we determined that they were actually bullets, we reached out to the sheriff's department, uh, majors as it, was, as it was called during the time. Right. Uh, and the crime lab and said, hey, you know, this is this is going to be a homicide. And uh, so we that's when we started the process of working together. So at this point, things start breaking uh, up into different teams, different tasks. And uh, so we have uh, the crime lab heading to the scene mm -hmm. and then detectives are starting to look into obviously the, the why someone would have killed him. Right. So I remember going to the crime scene. Um, and it was one of the first fire scenes that I had, had dug. Me uh, as well. <laughs> and so this is where we give y'all uh, great kudos because uh, um, unlike our crime scenes that are still fully standing and up, <laughs> and you can identify things such as couches and walls and, and other things, uh, that doesn't exist in your crime scenes. Now, no. to you, after you've seen these things over and over, you know that was a chair, that was a couch. And that's, that's why I certainly encourage, if, if you have one of these scenes, if you work in this field, to bring those two entities together because Absolutely. you see something totally different than we see. Mm -hmm. um, at this point, uh, we just look like uh, chimney sweeps uh, <laughs> gathering a lot of coal right. in, into uh, where the, the baskets with the, the, I would call them strainers, but you know what I'm talking about, the, that we sifting would Yeah, the sifting screen uh -huh. that we would shuffle through trying to find the, the one casing or the whatever. Right. Um, so... Uh, again, it's a totally different process. Uh, we spend a lot of time. It, it smells a lot more than, <laughs> than some of the some of the other scenes that that we've been on. So, again, uh, y'all do that on a regular basis, and we thank you so much for doing that. <laughs> right. So we don't. Uh, but so the next thing we had was we had to again find out find out why. Right? I mean, that's where every homicide starts. Is who would want to kill this person? So one thing that really stuck in my head as far as this case is we had a call slip. So I'm going back, you know, any previous calls that happened at this address and the call slip comes up and it says uh, it's, it's our decedent. It's, it's Michael Fred Glody that's calling in and saying that pretty much everybody in the neighborhood, there's 20 to 30 people outside of his house that want to kill him and burn his house. Okay. So that's where we start. Basically, the suspect is the whole neighborhood. Right. Everyone would like him dead. So that, that's a real great place that, that we start on this, right? Um, now, then we start looking at, at Next Weekend, one, for notification purposes, and also for their insight into, you know, how, how do we get, you know, uh, to who would want to kill them. Um, you know, and, and one thing I've, I've always said as far as working these murder cases, they're usually not difficult just in the sense that normally a lot of our murders is someone who has such an emotional rage or attachment you right. you can track down you know it's it's limited right. to mm -hmm. the amount of people that want to do that you know it's it's very rare that you have your serial killers with no connection those type of things right right, right. uh so you know we go and um find out that his son his his next of kin uh, as it is is uh, he was currently in jail um, and so I go to interview Michael Brandon Glody, uh, his father being Michael Fred, 
Um, and in talking with him, he, he was surprised and said that uh, the only person he could really think whatsoever that may have wanted to harm his father, and he didn't really say harm his father, he just knows one person who was regularly going to his house uh, was a person that uh, uh, named Mary. Okay, uh, So that was really the only connection we had of, of a person. Now, uh, to stop there for a moment, because as I said, I interviewed him at the jail. Uh, so this plays into uh, a different factor that sort of brings around why he's in jail and another connection to Michael Fred Glody. So um, a little bit about this neighborhood, and, and it's sort of very unique as far as this particular um, crime or, or just in general as far as this investigation. It's very rare that, that the area that we're looking at, that the witnesses, the suspect, the co-defendants, uh, all the evidence, everything involved is probably within like less than a square mile, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that's exactly what happened in this particular case uh, that, so, and, and for those that uh, have YouTube li uh, YouTube or, or Facebook where we, we do have the videos and some pictures on there, for those listening, uh, when you enter the neighborhood, it, it basically is one road entering and it sort of makes a, a circle uh, so there's only about three roads in this neighborhood and, and nearby is a lake. But in this neighborhood, so uh, Michael Fred Glody, where the fire occurred, is on one end of the street. And just down the other end of the street is where uh, a, another individual lived named Lori Randall. Lori Randall had a husband and three children. And uh, during the course of her life, she started getting involved in drugs. And she ended up uh, separating from her husband and leaving her children. And uh, whether out of uh, fear, need, uh, not sure, she started dating uh, her drug dealer. Uh, and uh, during the course of dating him, and she had expressed to some friends that she was afraid of leaving him, that he would harm her, these type of things. But in uh, 2006, and it was uh, March of 2006, uh, there was an incident in which uh, Lori Randall uh, was assaulted by Michael Brandon Glody. And uh, the detectives in that particular case had gotten a call from the hospital uh, stating that uh, Lori's injuries uh, were severe, uh, her pupils were fixed and dilated, that they did not believe she would be recovering from this injury. Uh, so uh, again, the injury occurred, uh, and I wanna say it was in uh, April, either way it was 2006, and uh, a few days later, uh, uh, Lori was taken off of life support uh, and she died. Now, again, that was 2006. It took until 2008 before Michael Fred and Michael Brandon were indicted for the death of Lori Randall. Now, I'm not sure, uh, you know, I don't have the conversations between the detectives and the DA on why they decided on uh, manslaughter versus murder. I don't know what the particulars were in that. I just know that uh, there were many witnesses who identified a lot of bruising uh, to face, shoulders, and, and arms, and, and previous incidents. In this particular case, apparently there was uh, Michael Brandon had shaken uh, Lori and hit her in the head. 
uh, they had taken her into the house uh, that in this case burnt and uh, stayed there and did not offer assistance, medical help or whatever till it got too late is sort of my understanding of it. Uh, but again, that was 2008. In 2009 uh, is when the trial happens in which uh, Michael Brandon, the son, is uh, either found guilty or pleads guilty. Either way, he gets 10 years. Um, but Michael Fred, in November of 2009, the cases are dismissed against him because of insufficient evidence. So he is, he is uh, off for the, um, the charge. So that's sort of where that is as far as history. They live down the road, and, and so that's why Brandon Michael uh, uh, Michael Brandon is in jail right now. Um, so the next, I guess, real break in the case that we get, um, which is between um, a witness comes forward. So, and it's the same person that Michael Brandon had mentioned. He said that Mary kept going in the house. Well, Mary comes forward, and we did a canvas of the neighborhood. We're talking to everybody, and and so Mary comes forward, and she says that um, a young girl who is 15, uh, who we're going to refer to as Jennifer, and to understand as we're telling this story, any witnesses, any juveniles, any people, we've changed their names. Uh, the only people that are truly identified are our suspects and uh, the defendants that are adults. Uh, but so Jennifer had come by Mary's house, and she told Mary that her and Keith, which is Lori Randall's middle son, had murdered Michael Glody. And the, I remember the thing that really stood out that was strange is that uh, Mary talked uh, very quickly, and she gave details. So, I mean, she's, she's telling us uh, how they entered what they had, where they sat, the conversation, where they moved to, all these different things, to the point that, and I can't remember, Kevin, if you were part of uh, the initial interview on that or if you had watched it, but um, to the point that after we were done, every experienced investigator looked at each other and said, she was involved, right? Yes, she, she, yeah, she, has, she has too many details. This does not mm -hmm. occur uh, as far as how much right. she knows, right? Um, but uh, she actually wasn't, as it comes out later. Uh, but uh, at that point, it led us to start looking at um, Jennifer and at Keith. Okay, mm -hmm. uh, Keith, again, is the middle son uh, involved in this. Um, and uh, Keith uh, has no criminal record. Um, the only criminal record that Keith had is he got a DWI. The day he got the DWI is the exact day that charges were dismissed against Michael Fred Glody. Um, basically, the day that the court dismissed the charge against him, he went out, had some drinks, drove when he shouldn't, got caught, gets right. a DWI. So that's his only, his only uh, criminal history whatsoever. Um, we then go and grab both of them, and I know that Kevin and I uh, – got to sit down and talk with Jennifer uh, at, at uh, we took her to the fire marshal's office uh, with her mom. Her mom was present for the whole thing. 
Um, and it's kind of why don't you sort of express the, her, her attitude, her, her general demeanor that we dealt with. Um, you know, it was just one of those situations where, um, I mean, she, she pretty much, when she was telling the story, she, I was, I mean, didn't care. I mean, that's another right. way to put it. Right. I mean, it, you may as well have been talking about any other day of the week. Right. It was just very factual, very matter of fact, very, um, you know, it's just, Hey, we did it. This is what we did. Um, you know, so it was, her mom was more emotional than she was. Right. I mean, I mean, I remember you and I talking later and saying that as, as, uh, Jennifer is telling the story, her mom looks like someone's punching her in the stomach. Right. I mean, she's the one who's actually taking on this, this emotion or whatever. And so, and I think part of that, and, and we'll discuss even in, uh, in punishment stuff later, but remember I talked about those 20 or 30 people that wanted to, to kill this person, right? So if you think about Jennifer, we're now at 2010, and that happened in 2006. So pretty much all her life between, you know, 10 and 15, she's been told that this guy is a piece of trash and that he should be killed and that he killed right. Lori and, and these type of things, right? It, it nearly, I mean, once they were saying the developmental years has been told, you know, his life is worth nothing. Right. And uh, another thing that sort of caught me on this was we had uh, another witness that uh, we had interviewed and she said that, so she's, she's walking with Jennifer and they're passing by Keith's house and there's like a little lake uh, next to Keith's house. Not, not really a lake. It's like a little, I don't know, retention pond, if right. you even call it that. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they're, they're walking by that and, um, and Keith uh, calls Jennifer over and uh, Heather, her friend is with her. She doesn't walk over with, but we talked to Heather later. And, and this is what Heather tells us, says that, that Keith uh, calls Jennifer over. And when Jennifer comes back, says, uh, so what, what did, what Keith want? Oh, he, he wants uh, me to help him kill Michael Glody. And she said, okay. And then they went to the house to watch movie. I mean, this was like a, a normal right. conversation, right? Like, right. you know, I mean, no different than someone saying, hey, let's, uh, he wanted to go uh, to a movie later right. or something. I mean, right. it was, there was no emotion involved. It was just like, oh, okay. You know. Yeah. It's very, like you said, it's kind of like it was entrained in that whole neighborhood that this guy was just a bad person. And that's kind of how their attitudes all turned out towards it. Right. So with with that and sort of walking through uh now once once we had keith now keith did not immediately tell us what happened uh keith um didn't talk about the crime i i, I can't remember his lie up front okay all i know is it was a lie uh, he right. had he had um told us something until he knew that we had jennifer as soon, i mean literally as soon as we told him we have jennifer that was it uh, and and he told us the whole thing, yeah. and that's uh, a kind of a common experience with a lot of people, at least from on my side. You know, with usually they get that lie up front until you can kind of show them that you have the rest of the story, and that's usually 
I pretty much have found on, on nearly all confessions, you getting a confession is dependent on them believing that you already know. Right. If they believe you already know the answer, they're willing to tell you the answer. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, um, even if you don't know the answer yet. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so the sort of the walkthrough, and, and this is why it was so crazy because it was, and that was the other thing that stood out. Remember, I, I talked about uh, Mary and how detailed she was uh, about Jennifer's story. But then when we met Jennifer, we knew why. Because if we thought Mary, like, was detailed, uh, it, Jennifer is 20 times more. Absolutely. Okay? And, and it was very much listening to a teenager. Everything was, oh, and like we did this, and like this was happening, and then like this. and I mean, it was just, a, a, again, a typical teenage conversation, except we were talking about murder. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And so, so here's the story between both of them as far as uh, what happened and then where our next things led. Um, so one thing we never were able to confirm, uh, I say confirm, we know that two weeks prior on the school bus, Keith was asking about getting a gun. Now, he never admitted that he got the gun for the purpose to kill Michael Glody. He just said he wanted, wanted a gun. We never could get him to admit that. Um, but he did get a gun. He did walk by the lake. He had involved um, Jennifer in this plan. And the, the thought or the reason behind that was that um, Jennifer, I guess, still had some type, I want to say relationship, that's probably not the most appropriate word for, for Michael Chloe, but she would go over there. I don't know why. Right. Uh, uh, we've never linked whether, um, whether she got drugs, whether it's just a friendship, whether don't know but she obviously was able to talk to him and there was a conversation that supposedly had come up that michael fred glody did not want keith mad at him about his mother he he wanted to convince him or explain to him that he was not responsible for his mom's death and did not want him to continue to be upset with him so that sort of opened the door because uh jennifer Basically said, well, I can I can make the meeting happen, right? right. Okay, so she reached out uh, to Michael Fred and said, hey, Keith would like to meet with you, okay? And so that's what was going to happen. Now, there is there's no doubt they knew this was not just a meeting that this what was about to happen because um, Jennifer sneaks out of the house after her mom goes to work, uh, meets Keith. Literally, they live. Again, whole neighborhood thing. They live a couple of houses from one another, walks down there. Keith already has a can of gas. He has the gun. Uh, they then walk uh, to Michael Fred's house, and they enter. And Michael Fred has a big Akita dog. Okay, those things are huge, right? So he, when the, the dog ended yes. up being a big part of the case. It did. It, it did. <laughs> and so uh, the dog... Uh, probably sensing something was up, I would imagine, uh, is not real fond of the kids coming in the house. And so he's steadily barking, being aggressive to the point that uh, Michael Fred ties him to the couch. And so they're sitting on, I think it was like a bed in the living room, Mm -hmm. and Michael Fred is sitting on a couch. Um, And at one point during... Um, 
during their conversation and immediately um, again going off of their statements as soon as they walked in Michael Fred offered them some Oxycontin uh, with the same casual as I would offer you a Coke or Sprite if you came to my house right, right? Uh, so they, they refused that uh, he was big into buying jewelry online now not like jewelry set but like stones right, right. so he, he had the stones and things like that that he would buy and so he, he was very proud of these. He was showing those off and stuff. Well, anyway, some, somewhere during the conversation, uh, Keith excuses himself to go to the bathroom. Uh, as he's coming back, so he's walking down the hall, and it's a trailer. So think of a trailer, sort of a, I can't remember if it was a double wide or single. It but was single. Yeah, so, it was small. So mm-hmm. small trailer. He, he was you know, heading uh, you know, down the hall, which basically was walking straight to the back of the couch, which had Michael Fred. Um, then Jennifer was sitting on the bed across mm-hmm. from him and uh, Keith had motioned to Jennifer to move out of the way, okay, uh, to, to move a little bit to the left or right. Um, so when she does, that sort of cues Michael Fred, uh, but at that time, Keith already has a gun out and starts shooting Michael Fred in the back of the head. Right. Um, so he now shoots him. They now have a dog to deal with, okay? And he brought the gas. Um, and so he throws some gas on just the steps out front and tries to light that, and apparently it doesn't work very well. Right. So uh, he then pours the rest in the house, and uh, we end up with him burning the house, burn the dog, uh, and he never shot the dog. He just let the dog burn. Right. And so that left one issue that we had uh, that we had to deal with, which we never had before. And that is we have a dog as part of the crime scene that we don't know if it has bullets. Right. right. We, we don't know what... Yeah, the fire department had buried the dog. Right. Yes, because they were... On the I, I guess yeah. being kind or something, right? right. And that's it's it's not an uncommon thing for them to do. Sure. If if somebody has a, a pet lost in a fire, they'll a lot of a lot of fire departments will bury it for them just out of courtesy, right? So, you so know. they did, mm-hmm. and we had to go retrieve right the dog the, the dog, <laughs> um, which then we had to send the dog away because you can't take a dog to a human forensic center or. <laughs> You shouldn't. We'll, we'll <laughs> right. just leave it at that. It should not end up at the regular forensic center. It needs right. to go for a necropsy. We have Texas A&M here that does it. Uh, in an upcoming show, we're going to talk about a um, the SPCA just started a new forensic uh, science center for animal cruelty out of Florida, and they're going to oh, come on and talk mm-hmm. about all the different things. Basically, it would have been a place that you would have sent this right. dog, right? right? Uh, but, uh, but prior to them burning... They steal a gun from the house, not not just the one they used to, to right. shoot them with, but they steal another gun, and they steal some jewelry. And then after leaving, they sort of go through the woods and cut back, and they uh, sort of split their take. Uh, each one takes some jewelry, and they head uh, their separate ways. So that's their story, and that then leads uh, Kevin and I to writing search warrants. That then Les will have to go and... Uh, process yes. so uh, so with those search warrants the first thing we're looking for uh, is obviously the stuff taken so there's a couple places we go um, 
one, we go to the juvenile's house, Jennifer, and uh, Jennifer also said in her statement that uh, during the time uh, that Keith had approached her about getting some of the jewelry, uh, wanted some of what they took, um, and after, I know going to her house, it was um, in the closet that we found, I don't know, there were, there were bags, there was boxes, there was, mm. and they were all like loose stones things. Uh, so, so that was there. And all the jewelry um, that we knew of that had been taken was there. Uh, but what we also found uh, is that he had sold some of it. Mm-hmm. So uh, we found out where he had sold some of the jewelry. And that was what I guess he had asked for, what he had wanted. And uh, another detective that we have, Detective Eason, had gone to uh, the... I can't remember. I think it was a jewelry store. I don't think it was a pawn shop. I think it was a jewelry store. So went to the jewelry store and uh, had gotten money for this, right? Right. Um, So now the one thing that really stood out, so then we run a search warrant on Keith's house. And obviously we're looking for the gun, right? Right. The one that he stole Mm -hmm. or the murder weapon. Either one would be great. (laughs) So we, uh, we go there. But the one thing that really stood out in doing Keith's house is when you entered his bedroom. So on his wall in the bedroom, he had news clippings uh, of his mom's murder and uh, had a picture of her on the wall and had um, the news article in which uh, you know, charges were dismissed and these type of things. So obviously this had been on his wall along with her obituary ever since the murder. Okay, mm-hmm. um, So that was, that was sort of telling of how much this... I mean, obviously, we, we always miss someone that's gone, but this is he this is on his living mind. With it right? daily. He's right. living with it, and the person possibly responsible lives right down the road, right. literally a couple of houses down. A daily right? reminder. Right. So, so that was going on there. We did. We were able to, uh, in talking with him, to find out he had actually taken the the gun that he stole. And he took it to an aunt's house, which had like a shed on their property. That's what I remember it was found back there. Yeah. So, so we went to the shed. Um, the family was less than cooperative with us going there. Uh, but we did find in the shed, we found the gun that, not the murder weapon, but the gun that uh, he had stolen uh, from Michael Glody. Uh, which leads us to uh, the bigger part uh, that Les had to deal with, and that is... So we talked to one of his friends uh, named Adam, and Adam is the one who took him to the jewelry store. And Adam also uh, told us about a lake nearby. Uh, And the lake, he said that there was a stump, and he like stood on the stump and he threw the gun out as far as he could. So uh, again, uh, the lake is right by this neighborhood. Again, everything is close by in this this case. but that led to us needing to recover this gun, uh, which we do not have or did not have a dive team capable of doing that. So we call our Houston Police Department. So you want to explain that process of, of the whole, the lake and the recovery. Sure. So we contacted HPD um, and made contact with their dive team, explained the circumstances, what we had in dealing with the murder and um, the possible disposal of the murder weapon into the lake. Um, and they came out, 
and kind of surveyed the area, figure out what they're dealing with, and then set up the day for them to come out and search. So we were out there, and uh, like he said, he, according to the statement, um, he had stood on the step and threw it into the lake like a Frisbee. Um, so we at least had a general sense of where they needed to search and about how far out they needed to go. Um, so they kind of they did their normal process. And, and actually, it's pretty neat because, I mean, they have communication. So even though they're underwater, they're still communicating with people right. on shore. Mm-hmm. Um, they can't see anything. No, I mean, this is this, we, we don't live in Cancun or anywhere, right? <laughs> I mean, so it's by all means, you're not seeing anything right. more than an inch in front of your face. So, so literally think about just sand, silt type mm-hmm. of bottom of a lake, and you're pretty much just crawling right. and feeling every inch of... You know, everything, yeah. everything you know, and making the, Dane, the water even murkier because you're, right, you're, you're stirring, stirring it, it all up. up right. Yeah. So that's that's what they do. Mm-hmm. And, and sort of in a line method of just going through and, and trying to, to find the area. Right. And um, the danger that goes with that of knowing that they're searching for a firearm that is, has the potential of being loaded at right. the time that it was thrown in. Now, I do remember a, a side story of this. We had found one other gun yeah. in there prior to this. But we had pulled out. It was a, it was a water gun. Yes. Yeah. Plastic. Now it got recovered the same exact way. They, it did. They thought they had it. They were putting it in the canister. Everything brought it up. We finally get it up. No, that's Rather. that's not it. <laughs> Go back down. Rather so, disappointing. But uh, they they were able to recover the gun. They were. So uh, now they had put it in a container with the water. You yes. want to explain that? Yeah. So once when we've got a weapon. Um, Generally, there are obviously metal components to the firearm. So when you introduce metal into a wet environment and you remove it from the wet environment, it has the potential of rusting and relatively quickly. So when that occurs, when we've got a a firearm or something, a metal object that we need to recover from water, uh, the best practice is to take a container down once they are able to locate an object that that they're going to bring to the surface. They're going to take a container with them, use the same water, the body of water that is there, fill the container with the water, put the object in that container, and then bring it up to the surface. Uh, So as long as if it is a firearm or another metal object that is intended on being recovered, as long as it stays submerged, it's not going to rust as, as soon as it's brought to into the air or into a regular environment is when that rust rust um, process begins. So in order to preserve it the best we can, we um, we collect it into a container of the same body of water. So now, then, what happens to the gun like after after you got it? I mean, obviously, we're going to test it. We're gonna, we have we have bullets from the mm-hmm. autopsy that yes. we want to compare. Did it come from this? So yes. what's our next process after it after it hits our container, right? So once we have it documented at the scene um, as best we can in the murky water that's now in the container, it will come back to the crime lab. And at that point, um, we'll remove it from the water and start a, a kind of a cleansing process to retard the, the rust process. Uh, once we get that to a stable state, uh, then we actually ended up submitting it to the state lab. Uh, we arranged that uh, we ended up driving it to Austin, which was where it needed to be submitted. 
And so we let them know what we had, what the circumstances of the offense were, uh, took the firearms evidence that was collected from autopsy, as well as the firearm that was collected from the lake, and allowed them to, to do their analysis of it. So now they ended up getting a match. They did. So the, the gun actually mm -hmm. matched the, the bullets recovered from yes. uh, Michael Fred. So, so in this case so far, we now have witnesses that they've confessed to. They've confessed to us, which those confessions let, led to new evidence that we didn't have, right. um, which was the jewelry, uh, the gun uh, mm -hmm. in the shed. And so I mean, we're, we're tying everything uh, very solid in this case. Um, and the end result, uh, both were plead. This never went to trial. Uh, mm -hmm. Both pled. Uh, Keith got 35 years. Mm -hmm. uh, Jennifer got 15 years. Uh, now, I'll tell you a couple of, um, I guess, sad processes of this. is So I remember in interviewing Keith, and after he had left, he, he made the comment. He says, I know what I did was wrong, uh, and, and I'll do you know my five years or so, and, and I'll get on with life. Um, and I really think he believed that because what he had witnessed with his mom was that uh, the person got 10 years right. for manslaughter, mm -hmm which you have to do half your time, right? So it means five years right. he's looking at getting out. And he certainly could not correlate anything he did different than the person that killed his mom. Right. right. You know, so I know at no point was he thinking of 35 years. And, and I think this, uh, when you look at the dates, I mean, he really, uh, you know, it, it still doesn't make it right, but he waited. I mean, he waited from 2006 until 2009 for someone to indict, or not indict, but to find Michael Fred guilty right. of killing his mom, and there's insufficient evidence. Now, again, that's why it's not right, because the court basically said he didn't. So did he kill an innocent person? You know, obviously in his mind, no. He felt that he was involved in his mom's right. murder. He waited until 2009. It was three months before this. So... Uh, three months before he gets his DWI, after that, um, at no point did we ever get him to confess to saying he'd been planning this for three months, right? But right. obviously there was planning within the first uh, couple weeks before this. Now, the next process was the juvenile with Jennifer. Mm -hmm. So the way uh, Texas law works, she was 15 at the time, but... Uh, if you commit a crime as a juvenile, there's a hearing once you turn 18. And that decides whether or not you will continue to serve out your sentence as an adult in Texas Department of Corrections or whether they feel that you have rehabbed, you've done enough, and, and you get to be released. Right. One of the biggest factors that they determine that on is your remorse and your growth. And I remember sitting at the at the hearing for this purpose and and they spoke about how she had no remorse and uh obviously i guess i don't know what all happens behind juvenile detention of counselors and different things right. of rehab and whatnot but obviously all those people talked about mm -hmm. she didn't care right. i mean and that goes back to our original conversation of ever since she was nine or ten years old everyone told her this is a bad guy. Not right. to care, right? right? I mean, uh, yeah, you, you initially say, well, murder's wrong no matter what, and you accept that. But when 
the adults and all of your surrounding environment is telling you, yeah, killing's wrong, but not him. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Okay. So, um, I, I, again, there's sort of that balance of do you, do you hold her to the same feeling of remorse, you know, sure. when that either way they did, she had to serve out her time. She is not currently in jail. Uh, Keith is. Mm-hmm. Uh, Keith's first uh, hearing for parole will be in 2027. 20, yeah. okay. So he's uh, he is still in prison over this. Um, you know, and there's been a lot of uh, talk afterwards as far as Keith's involvement. Um, I think the end result certainly the same, the murder of a person. But I think that if Keith, out of his revenge, anger, emotion, or whatever, would have walked over and killed Michael Fred Glody, I mean, just like opened the door, shot him, and walked away, would be one thing. Mm-hmm. Once you involve a 15-year-old, yeah. you kill the dog, you burn the house, you take jewelry, you take the gun, you profit from the jewelry. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, the sympathy level starts going down, sure. right? right? I mean, on every action that you're taking that that is just a calculated, premeditated, financial gain murder. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's, that's um, you know, one of the big differences. I, I think that certainly his mom's murder played a factor, but I think that... Um, the other actions beyond that, which again may go to the fact that he he didn't care, right? And I think it's appropriate by all means that in, in ending that we talk about some of the I, I'll, I'll say excuses, but some of the concerns, some of the things that the family threw out, right? So mm-hmm. the family of Keith is throwing out that the 15 year old is the one who really manipulated him and made him do this, right? And then you have uh, Michael Fred's family, uh, his daughter testifying that. He was a wonderful father, that these are lies about him, and that he was just killed in cold blood murder for his, his joy. So, so certainly I don't want to dismiss uh, their feelings, their thoughts about their, their family or otherwise. Right. Right. Uh, obviously, we're testifying and uh, on stand to the facts of what we find, you sure. know, and that's what we're covering today is what's in our cases and what we experienced out there. Um, you know, the, the end result is that... Uh, Michael Brandon is not in jail anymore. He served his time for uh, Lori Randall. Uh, the criminal justice system decided that Michael Fred uh, did not have enough sufficient evidence to say he was involved in that. Uh, so uh, we have someone who took it into their own hands and obviously is now punished for that. But again, um, forensic-wise, mm-hmm. investigation-wise, this was a case that touched many areas. I think it was a very interesting case. And... Um, uh, certainly challenged all of us to do new things like digging right. in fire scenes <laughs> and, and uh, you finding <laughs> how to unbury a dog and everything else. Right. So, uh, but I thank y'all for for joining today and mm-hmm. uh, uh, putting Thanks this out us. there. Yeah. And so, uh, as always, if uh, you enjoyed this program, you can uh, subscribe, like, whatever you do for all of our channels that we have out mm-hmm. there. And uh, if you would like to be a guest, if you'd like a topic covered. You can reach out to me, Dan, at crimescenaday.com. If you would like to support any of the shows at Lone Star Radio that supports us, you can contact Dick at irlonestar.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.